previously on Valley 101. The executive order declared certain areas military zones, including the West Coast. Anyone who was deemed a potential threat was not allowed to live in those zones, including Japanese Americans. Richard was about four or five years old when his family was forced from their home and their farm into Poston in 1942. I remember getting on a bus similar to a Greyhound bus, and our family was on the bus, and, and we apparently went to uh, Parker, Arizona. And then I remember getting off of Parker and getting onto an army truck. And from the uh, post, uh, from Parker, we went to the Poston camp. Poston's population reached 17,867 people in September of 1942. That made it the third largest city in Arizona at the time. Gila River had a population of 16,655 people at its height, putting it at the fourth largest city. Only Phoenix and Tucson were larger than the incarceration sites. Welcome to Valley 101 a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. This week's episode is part two of our examination of the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, 46,000 of whom were in camps in Arizona. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I'd go back and do that first. Here's Katie O'Connell taking a look at what life was like outside of the camps and after the war. Last week, our show focused on what life was like for Japanese Americans who were forced into incarceration camps. But Executive Order 9066 also upended the lives of Japanese Americans who lived north or east of the line of demarcation in Phoenix. Farmers who lived north of the line ran into an issue when it came time to sell their produce. Donna Chung is the president of the Japanese American Citizens League, Arizona chapter. I spoke to her for the last episode. She said that most markets were located south of the line, which Japanese-American farmers weren't allowed to cross. They'd have to rely on someone else to sell their produce for them. Part of the process of being a business owner or farmer is that you have to negotiate the price of sale, and sometimes they're not exactly sure whether their best interests, interests were kept. Many of the major hospitals or doctors in town were located south of the line. That presented an issue in particular for pregnant women. For childbirth, for uh, prenatal care and all that, they would need special permission to cross the line to see their doctor or to give birth to use the services of a hospital. It affected education too. Dr. Richard Matsuishi was a child when his family was incarcerated in Poston. He said that there was a large Japanese-American population in Glendale, but students were no longer able to attend Glendale High. It was south of the line. 
Instead, Peoria High School opened their doors to them. But there was one thing Japanese Americans who lived outside of the militarized zone could do. They could sponsor other Japanese Americans out of incarceration camps. According to Densho, the U.S. government created a program that allowed laborers to move outside of the camps indefinitely. More than 1,000 internees were sponsored out to do seasonal farm work, and about 4,000 were sponsored out to attend college. In order to qualify for this program, you had to fill out Selective Service Form 304A. That form later became known as the Loyalty Questionnaire, and there were two questions on it that caused a lot of confusion and controversy. And one of the first ones was, would you forswear any loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? And the second one was, would you serve in combat in the United States military? Richard said that many Nisei, or U.S.-born citizens of Japanese immigrants, were hurt by that first question. They'd never lived in Japan or professed a loyalty to the emperor. As for that second question, Your family's incarcerated. They're behind barbed wires. Are you going to voluntarily go and serve in the military when your people are in jail, so to speak? We know many Japanese Americans did serve. We talked about the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in the last episode. But for some, this felt like making a promise to serve without volunteering and without having their constitutional right to due process restored. Even if you did qualify to be sponsored out, the journey to your new job or new place of living outside of the militarized zone wasn't easy. You could only travel between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Jody Crago, the museum administrator for the Chandler Museum, said that wasn't easy. Think about pre-interstate system, trying to travel across the country and knowing where you're going to sleep for the night so that you can stop traveling by 5 p.m. And that was assuming the hotel or motel would rent you a room. Jody told me a story about a group of men who were traveling from a camp in Texas to work in Colorado. They passed through Arizona, and even though they had the correct paperwork, they were told to head south to the Gila River camp. Still, the program helped Japanese-American citizens leave the camps. Kathy Nakagawa's father, who had been incarcerated in Poston, was sponsored out after a year by a Japanese-American family who lived outside of the line of demarcation. And so they helped farm there. Um, so he and his dad then just kind of worked on a farm and helped with the rest of the family and then eventually were able to like, sponsor the rest of the family out. And it wasn't just Japanese Americans who sponsored their fellow citizens out. Karen Leong is one of the two Arizona State University faculty members who I spoke to for the last episode. She gave me examples of other families or groups who acted as sponsors. There was a group of Quakers from the Northeast, for instance. They raised funds for Nisei College students to finish their degrees after getting sponsored out. (music) 
While most white Americans believed what the U.S. government said about Executive Order 9066, there were pockets of dissent. And that dissent took many forms. Locally, there were smaller forms of fighting back. The Gila River incarceration camp was about a 40 to 45 minute drive away from Chandler. Jody said that people in Chandler would travel to the camp to help the internees. So they would bring down books for children, magazines, pencils, all sorts of things that they could bring into the camp to help the, the uh, folks in the internment camp. In 1943, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt visited Gila River. After that visit, she told the Los Angeles Times that, quote, the sooner we get the young Japanese out of the camps, the better. Most notably were the legal efforts of Japanese Americans to overturn Executive Order 9066. Minoru Yasui, Gordon Hirabayashi, and Fred Korematsu all sued the U.S. government. Each case challenged the constitutionality of the government's actions at the time. Here's what Yasui said in an interview with Densho in 1983. It was completely arbitrary with no consideration or relationship as the actual military dangers involved. And I say this because they were taking the young people, the children, the old people, they were taking females, and it had, in my opinion, no basis in law. However, the Supreme Court sided with the U.S. government in all three cases. In his opinion on the Korematsu case, Justice Hugo Black said that, quote, the military urgency of the situation demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily. But one other court case would have far different implications. Mitsui Endo was a clerical worker with the state of California. But she was fired from that job after the attack on Pearl Harbor. She was forcibly removed from Sacramento, only to be incarcerated in California and then Utah. According to Densho, attorney James Purcell filed a writ habeas corpus petition on her behalf. He claimed that her unlawful incarceration deprived her of the ability to work for the state of California. Writ of habeas corpus is a piece of a relief that you go to the government and say, you know, you have, ja you have arrested me and jailed me, but you haven't told me why. You must tell me why. That's William Marutani, who was incarcerated at Tool Lake and later became an attorney. In an interview with Densho, William said that habeas corpus petitions are usually addressed in a matter of days. Mitsui's petition wasn't addressed for a year. Eventually, her case made it to the Supreme Court. And on December 18, 1944, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in her favor. Their decision said that the U.S. government couldn't detain, quote, conceitedly loyal people against their will. It did not, however, address the constitutionality of the exclusion orders, just the detention. The Roosevelt administration had been tipped off about the ruling. And the day before, on December 17, 1944, it issued Proclamation No. 21, ending incarceration and allowing Japanese Americans to return home. 
In January of 1945, eight months before the end of the war with Japan, the U.S. government began the process of closing the incarceration camps. Donna said there were differences in how the Gila River and Poston incarceration camps were closed. At Gila River, all of the water and electrical infrastructure was removed. This was despite the fact that the government had promised to leave it intact after the war. And that's an interesting discussion with Native American communities because they didn't have that type of infrastructure to begin with and it would have so benefited the Native American communities like the Gila River Indian community had the water infrastructure and the electrical infrastructure been left intact for them to use. However, Poston was under joint control of the War Relocation Authority and the Office of Indian Affairs until 1943. That additional layer of control meant that the infrastructure at Poston was left intact. And with increased irrigation capabilities, the Colorado River Tribe was able to convert that land into farmland, which continues to help the tribe's economy today. When the incarceration camps closed, internees were given $25 and a one-way ticket home. Others were unable to return to their homes, which had been sold, or to their shuttered businesses. Richard's family remained in Poston for the entirety of incarceration. Later, they returned to California. He said he was called a racial slur by two classmates afterward. He also remembers going to the grocery store with his dad one day. And there's a bar there, and this redneck Caucasian comes out and my dad says, hey, let's go, let's go, we gotta go. Apparently he was threatening my dad and my family. And I said, what's happening, dad? And he wouldn't say anything. But after you know, I grew up, I knew what was happening. Richard eventually became the student body president in high school. He attended the University of Southern California where he studied dentistry. He met his wife, Peggy, when she was on vacation in California. Peggy, who's from Arizona, had been incarcerated at a camp in Arkansas before her family was sponsored out. Richard and Peggy moved to Phoenix in 1965. Married for 58 years, they have three daughters and five grandchildren. Kathy grew up in Tempe in the 60s and 70s. Talking to her helped me understand what post-war life was like for Japanese-American families. She said that her parents, both of whom were incarcerated during the war, never brought it up voluntarily. And part of it was, when my mom did talk about it, she, she would give some of these standard reasons, like, well, there's a Japanese saying, shikatakanai, it can't be helped, so you just kind of move on from it. Um, and I think they just didn't want to really think about it very much, and so they just kind of moved on. Kathy doesn't remember learning that two of the largest incarceration camps were in Arizona. But she does remember learning about Pearl Harbor in school. In 
in history classes, and then there would be jokes about being a spy and things like that when I was a kid. So I remember those kinds of things. I rarely remember discussions about the, the um, yeah, imprisonment of the Japanese Americans. How did you handle those jokes? It was usually, you know, we, I would laugh along with my friends because we were I think I was the only Japanese-American family going up in, growing up in our schools. After the war, Kathy's father Nick and his family were unable to return to the farmland they had tended to before. Instead, Kathy's family and six other Japanese-American families began farming and selling flowers. A microclimate near South Mountain allowed the families to grow 300 acres of flowers. The farm stretched along Baseline Road from 14th Street to 32nd Street. Photos of the farm show row after row of purple and red blooms rising near palm trees. Kathy's favorites were the sweet peas. And the flowers were a huge tourist draw in the 60s. I think that's the best part when I talk about that part of my family's history or the, that part of the history of Phoenix. There's so many people who still remember it or they got their flowers for significant events in their lives from there. Plus, the tourists who came to see the flowers ended up interacting with Japanese-American families, some of them for the first time. That interaction changed some people's perception of their neighbors. So I think a lot of people who probably held uh, racist notions against the Japanese Americans, when they went down to the farms and talked to them, um, it, it might have changed their perspectives. During the post-war period, the efforts to seek justice for those who had been incarcerated grew. What started with the Supreme Court cases during the war turned into a movement called redress afterwards. And so the process of redress was talking about not only having a moment of truth and reconciliation for the country, but also to right a wrong. There were victories along the way, in 1952, the McCarran-Walter Act repealed alien land laws. It also allowed Japanese immigrants to become citizens. The Emergency Detention Act, which allowed the government to detain people who were suspected of espionage, was repealed in 1971. But the most significant step toward healing started in 1980 under President Jimmy Carter. Carter formed the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. Here's how Donna described the goal of the commission. We should really look at why this happened in the, in the United States, which is known for its democratic values, and, um, and how we could make it better, and what we could learn from that. To do this, the commission spent a year and a half researching incarceration. More than 500 internees shared their stories. This included people who had never spoken about their experiences publicly. 
part of the issue of why this is significant mm -hmm. is because for many, many years, former incarcerees, as well as people, Japanese Americans who weren't incarcerated, that they um, fell silent. There's a certain reluctance to talk about their experience, whether they're incarcerated or not. In 1983, the commission released a report. The report concluded that Japanese-American incarceration happened because of three social factors. Those factors were, quote, war hysteria, racial prejudice based on fear-mongering, and failure of political leadership. The commission recommended three things, that Congress and the president issue a national apology, that they establish a foundation to educate the public, and that they provide $20,000 to each surviving internee. After years of political back and forth, President Ronald Reagan acted on those recommendations, signing the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. We gather here today to right a grave wrong. Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. The bill offered a formal apology to those who had been incarcerated. It also ensured financial reparations. According to Densho, by February of 1999, more than 82,000 thousand former internees had been paid $20,000 each, totaling more than just $1.6 billion. And many people just donated that to their charity or to their local community organization. But it's but most of, for the most, most of the incarcerees, what they most value was their letter of apology. As our understanding of what happened in the war changed, so did our language around it. Donna said that the JACL prefers to call them concentration camps. In fact, the JACL worked with seven Jewish American groups in the 1990s to establish the fact that the camps in the U.S. were concentration camps by definition. After all, the camp's population was a targeted group of people who were intentionally concentrated under military orders without being charged or convicted of a crime. And that was not to dismiss or to discredit the horror of the World War II Holocaust camps, um, mainly because when those were called concentration camps, that's a euphemism for that reality because those were not concentration camps, those were death camps and extermination camps. So we're talking about trying to unpack layers of euphemisms, right? However, Donna understands that the phrase concentration camp brings up really strong feelings for people. She uses the phrase incarceration site during outreach and educational opportunities because she needs people to keep their ears and their hearts open. And if I say concentration camps, I'm afraid that they will just shut down and not hear the rest of the story. The U.S. government's official line was that the incarceration of Japanese Americans without due process 
was necessary to protect the country from espionage. To this day, there is no evidence of espionage or Japanese-American people working as traitors against the U.S. government during World War II. Not a single one. Not much remains of the Poston and Gila River camps. There's a monument at Poston dedicated to those who were incarcerated there. And the Colorado River Indian community welcomes people to stop by and see it. However, a permit is necessary to visit the site on the Gila River land. The JACL has a biannual cleanup trip to the monument sites. In order to access the site, they seek permission, establish a permit, and get an escort. So I would want the public to know to not go wandering out onto the Gila land without a proper authorization, without escort, because that could be also dangerous too. It's a vast desert out there. Although the camps do not exist physically, Karen said that Arizona State University and the JACL have been collaborating on an oral history project since 2003. So far, they've collected oral histories from more than 40 people. Overall, Kathy and other members of the JACL do not feel like the state of Arizona does enough to teach this chapter of history, particularly its role in it. But they said we're not alone in that. So we'll still meet adults today who said, will say that I had no idea that this occurred. I didn't know that 120,000 Japanese Americans were imprisoned. The JACL is active in education efforts. They were the majority sponsor for a Smithsonian traveling exhibit called Writing a Wrong at the Arizona Capitol Museum. Although the traveling exhibit is gone, that museum still has an exhibit people can see about incarceration in Arizona. In addition to educating people about the past, Donna said that an important mission of the JACL is to ensure that the pain Japanese Americans suffered isn't repeated. We would not want that to be repeated and it's our job and our duty, our responsibility to step forward to say this is wrong if we see other communities being similarly targeted. And so we talk about the resonance and relevance of that legacy, which is a, one of the major values and mission of JCL nationally and the Arizona chapter. For activists, there are clear parallels between Japanese-American incarceration during World War II and modern issues. A few examples came up during the course of my reporting, like SB 1070. A thunderbolt from the U.S. Supreme Court today on immigration. As of 10.30 Eastern Time this morning, the court said Arizona police can officially demand proof from the people they pull over, proof that they are in this country legally. Or President Donald Trump's executive order banning the entry of people from seven Muslim-majority countries for 90 days. No ban! No wall! No ban! Venting their anger, there remain all kinds of people in this country who oppose Trump's travel ban. The Supreme Court has endorsed bigotry and Islamophobia and the detention of U.S. citizens by ICE. 
As of this morning, there was an 18-year-old American citizen, a rising high school senior on his way to soccer tryouts, who was detained in this country by his own country and put in the custody of immigration authorities for three entire weeks for no reason. And Galicia telling our Dallas affiliate the conditions in custody were so bad, he considered self-deportation because he didn't, quote, want to suffer anymore. It's a cycle. It's a cycle, and that's why we continue to talk about relevance when it comes to incarceration. Because it's not about that specific incident of incarceration, it's about the entire process, the incrementalism of discrimination that led up to, to, that, to that act of an executive order that, re, you know, that resulted in removal, relocation, incarceration of 120,000 people, two-thirds of which were U.S. citizens. For Donna, remaining vigilant is tied to remaining hopeful. She said that we have the power to choose what kind of country we want to be. For the Japanese-American experience, having that redress movement, a, a, a movement that involved truth and reconciliation, that really helped the country move on, not just the community move on, but it allowed the country to move on. That was a bright spot for the United States. And it is my hope that moving forward that we could have similar courageously bright spots for other communities because in the end that makes the United States stronger. Hey, Kayla, before I hand it back to you, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone I talked to over the course of my reporting. Special thanks to Karen Leong and Kathy Nakagawa for letting me get in touch with you a few times with different fact-checking questions. And thank you to Dr. Richard Matsuishi. He opened up his home to me and shared an incredibly personal memory with all of us. My reporting wouldn't have been possible without him. Katie, you covered a lot of ground in the last two episodes, but I know there are details that didn't make it into that. What are some good resources for people who want to know more about this topic? Ooh, that's a good question. The exhibit at the Chandler Museum is open until April of 2020, so you could head there. There's also the exhibit at the Arizona Capitol Museum. There are also a ton of books on the subject, like Years of Infamy, or you could watch documentaries like And Then They Came For Us. Thanks for those suggestions. If you are still interested and would like to see more, learn more, see photos from that time, you should follow us on Twitter at Valley101Pod. We always post new behind-the-scenes stuff related to our episodes, but this week we will have a lot related to this episode. And you can tweet us your questions there. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. See you next week.